Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. and welcome to our TIFF talk this evening. My name is Lynn McFadden and I will be your moderator tonight. And I have the pleasure of having uh, two of our reflux physicians with us this evening, uh, Dr. Jay Yapuri and Dr. Joe Eliason. So I'll uh, just give you all a quick introduction of both physicians and uh, we'll kick off this evening's episode of our TIFF talk. Dr. Jay Yapuri is a native of Louisville, Kentucky. He is a board-certified gastroenterologist with a subspecialty in therapeutic endoscopy. Only a few GI doctors in the Dallas-Fort Worth area have completed this subspecialty training, which allows Dr. Yapuri the ability to offer patients a unique expertise in advanced therapeutic endoscopy procedures. So welcome to the TIFF Talk this evening, Dr. Yapuri. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, happy to be joining. Good, we're glad you're here. And next we have Dr. Joe Eliason. Uh, Dr. Joe Eliason is a board certified general surgeon who grew up in North Texas and his practice specializes in the treatment of reflux. So welcome to the TIFF Talk this evening to Dr. Eliason. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being here, both of you. Um, these are great talks for patients. We get a lot of consumers joining these talks to learn more about reflux and hear from our doctors how they're treating it, what they're hearing from their patients and the outcomes they're seeing. So um, I'll kick it off by asking one of you to maybe take a stab at, can you please define what exactly is GERD? Yeah. Um how we as physicians and surgeons look at GERD and how we talk to our patients about it is we all experience some degree of reflux normally. Contents in the stomach do, as a normal physiologic process, do um, enter the esophagus. And, and that, that's a normal process that we, we all experience. The frequency of that increases. And when it's associated with, which some textbook definitions are more than twice a week, and then yeah. when it tends to be associated, what I think is more important for folks like Dr. Elias and myself to sort out is when it's associated with troublesome symptoms, uh, more frequent uh, heartburn, chest pain, um, sensation of food and other contents coming up, trouble swallowing, uh, food sticking, abdominal or chest pain. Um, this is when, uh, and then that's happening more often or more frequently. Uh, that's when we, you know, we we look at it as gastroesophageal reflux disease, and then have to think about options and ways to manage it. Yeah, great points, and thank you. You touched a little bit on symptoms. That would actually be my next question. Um, there's atypical and typical symptoms of reflux. Um, what are the symptoms your patients are most commonly experiencing or telling you? Most commonly, the symptoms my patients describe are heartburn and regurgitation. 
And as Dr. Yupuri pointed out, um, some people also have some difficulty swallowing. Um, with um, more advanced disease, sometimes people do have the chest pain or um, shortness of breath. Um, and those would be the typical symptoms. Dr. Lyson, you know, really hit the nail on the head on the, on the kind of the typical, I would just add some of the atypical symptoms could be things you don't typically associate with kind of classic heartburn reflux, like jaw pain, throat clearing, or chest pain and other discomfort. Yeah, they're great to point out those atypical symptoms. And uh, who would think jaw pain? You know, that's not one that would often cross your mind that it could be related to reflux. Um, so when your patients tell you they've attempted to manage their symptoms, um, you know, what, what are your recommendations to helping them understand ways that they can try to manage their reflux symptoms? When patients come to see a primary care doctor or gastroenterologist, they're really coming at this from a, a very early or kind of midpoint in their disease process where they've probably tried lifestyle interventions, dietary interventions, you know, things you often think about when you, when you get online or see in terms of raising the head of the bed uh, or, or limiting eating, you know, a couple hours, at least a couple, three hours before bedtime. The spectrum is the, which patients kind of vary is the degree to which they've tried um, either over-the-counter prescription medical therapy, be it H2 blockers or proton pump inhibitors. That, that kind of goes across the spectrum. You know, certainly those, you know, then we start to get into discussions around uh, potential procedural, surgical, or endoscopic options, you know, for patients who are tired of taking medication or for whom uh, their, their symptoms are not as well controlled on medication. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about too, what, if they're not managing their symptoms, what could unmanaged GERD potentially lead to? Yeah, I mean, some of the things we see include, um, as Dr. Lyson touched on, when we talk about trouble swallowing or dysphagia is the term we use. So you can develop um, scar narrowing of the esophagus, something called an esophageal stricture or stenosis. Um, could develop uh, uncontrolled reflux in the right genetic background, could lead uh, to the development of a condition called Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous condition of the esophagus with uh, a risk of developing esophageal cancer depending on the, the stage of Barrett's. Uh, uh, there are, are also phenomena, as Dr. Lyson touched on, where patients can aspirate and actually exacerbate respiratory symptoms like, like, like asthma. They may be unaware of aspirated contents coming up and entering the, the airway and into the lungs. Most patients with bad reflux also have a condition called a hiatal hernia. And hiatal hernias, as they grow, can cause other problems as well. So it's, it's perhaps part of the same discussion, but it is um, independent of uh, reflux itself. Uh, hiatal hernias is where the opening of the diaphragm that the esophagus passes through, um, which is normally about the size of a quarter. When that opening stretches larger, um, it, like other hernias in our body, that can allow the stomach to slip through the diaphragm into the chest. And that has profound consequences with regards to um, defeating the reflux barrier or leading to reflux disease. But it can also cause problems independent of that, um, such that people get short of breath because the, the lungs are being crammed up in their space. Or, or um, uh, uh, rarely, thankfully, but it could also lead to uh, blockage of the stomach uh, difficulty to eat or get food out of the stomach, vomiting and other problems with that. 
Sure. So that hernia is really something we hear a lot on social channels about, um, you know, what is a hiatal hernia and how does that play into reflux? So um, it is interesting, um, you know, the, the amount of questions we get about that. And we'll talk a little bit more about the way you both collaborate in treating those patients and um, kind of what brought your care team together um, in treating reflux patients who have also have a hiatal hernia. Um, but let's first talk a little bit too about the tests. What tests would be involved in um, diagnosing GERD for anyone who's thinking they may have this? What tests might they experience along the way? So generally patients who present with symptomatic enough reflux GERD or concern for GERD or any of those associated symptoms that we discussed earlier in this in our conversation, you know, they'll undergo an, an endoscopy. Um, looking for some of the things that we've talked about, the hiatal hernia, esophageal stricture, reflux damage, the esophagus, reflux esophagitis, or the development of Barrett's esophagus. Um, now, sometimes patients may also undergo a what's called an upper GI series, which the two term upper endoscopy or EGD and upper GI series sometimes are confused. So it's nice to make be able, have an opportunity to kind of separate the two. The upper GI series is actually an X-ray where contrast is swallowed by the patient, and it gives a nice outline of the of the anatomy of the esophagus and stomach, um, and sometimes further down if we need for, for other conditions. It, it is a complementary piece of information that Dr. Lyson and myself will order. Um, so for example, sometimes a, a, a hiatal hernia is not well uh, uh, seen or, or characterized on an endoscopy, but um, but is much better seen and characterized on, on an upper GI series x-ray. So they can be complementary. Uh, in addition, and particularly when we're working patients up for an anti-reflux procedure, uh, be it endoscopic or surgical, uh, we will also sometimes offer patients an uh, acid pH study where a probe either placed down the nose through into the esophagus or placed endoscopically and wirelessly records pH levels or acid levels in the esophagus to formally document the presence of acid reflux. Uh, in addition, uh, we will or proceed with the often want to get some form of measurement of the pressure movement function of the esophagus, which can be done either as a as an esophageal manometry test. Most commonly, uh, Dr. Lyson and I also have patients who uh, will order a, a procedure called a marshmallow bagel swallow test, uh, where you can actually watch that bolus of food transit and can give you kind of a sense of the movement function of the esophagus. Uh, that's a complementary to the acid uh, acid study that that I, that I referred to. Wonderful. What was that test called again? I don't think I've heard that one. It's a functional um, study of the esophagus to uh, ascertain if the, the esophagus works, is strong enough um, for the procedure we may offer to repair the reflux. What we don't want to do is to um, fix the reflux, but then create a new problem with difficulty swallowing. Yeah. I put, I put all these tests into kind of two categories. First category is first do no harm. And the second category is to help people. And so the studies like the, the, um, the barium swallow and the acid tests help confirm objectively that their symptoms that are describing are caused by abnormal acid in their esophagus. And, and that often helps us correlate their symptoms with, with those abnormal readings as well. And that confirms that, that a procedure like this will be or can be beneficial for them. 
The, the other studies, the functional studies to measure how well the esophagus work, those are of a benefit so that we uh, know which um, procedures are appropriate and which ones are not. Um, because if we fix someone's reflux, but then they have trouble swallowing afterwards, we haven't really fixed them. Yeah, that's a great point too. And um, just really doing a holistic evaluation um, and, and you know, treating each patient um, as needed. I love the way you tackle that and the way you put that too about um, making sure you're helping them and not harming them. So thank you for the thorough explanation of those uh, potential diagnostic tests. So moving on to treatment options, what options are available to treat GERD and how do you treat GERD in your practice together? I'll speak to the endoscopic side. Um, we, we have the ability to uh, offer radiofrequency uh, energy to the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, that's a, a been a procedure that's been out for quite some time that has a kind of a niche role and, and a narrow band of patients room that might be offered. Uh, we also have the endoscopic uh, TIF, uh, transoral incisionless fundoplication procedure um, to augment and strengthen that uh, barrier between the esophagus and stomach. In my practice, I found the best results uh, with TIF have occurred when we do that in conjunction uh, with a hiatal hernia repair. I think one limitation of, of endoscopic procedures or endoscopic uh, anti-reflux procedures is uh, until something like CTIF came along or the concept of that came along, we weren't really addressing the hiatal hernia, which repair of that is essential. And then I'll, of course, Dr. Lyson can further elaborate on that and, and the other and the other options available. Yeah. So um, what I'd say, and, and I'm, I'm going to dodge your question for just a minute, um, there are two comp major components to the reflux barrier. The first is the, the sphincter or the doorway that sits between the stomach and esophagus. Um, we commonly call that the lower esophageal sphincter or LES. Um, the other is the, uh, the opening in the diaphragm, the hiatus that the esophagus passes through. Um, they both contribute to closing off the top of the stomach um, uh, when we're not swallowing. Um, and um, if, if people have reflux, they have a, a failure of one or both of those uh, mechanisms. And um, uh, the, the first two procedures Dr. Yupuri discussed um, are uh, successful when people don't have a hiatal hernia um, and because the, the second of those um, weaknesses is not there. But if someone has a, a weakness of the hiatus as well as the sphincter, um, fixing that hernia has to occur also. And so um, in conjunction with Dr. Yupuri, uh, we um, often will uh, fix the hiatal hernia surgically. And we do that laparoscopically. It's a minimally invasive procedure, small little keyhole incisions. Um, and uh, after repairing that, uh, then Dr. Yupuri can do the endoscopic strengthening of the, the sphincter. Um, other times um, I will fix the hiatal hernia and then either do a, a, a procedure called a fundoplication. And there are many different types of fundoplications um, available. Um, uh, commonly we call them a wrap where we take the top of the stomach, um, which is called the fundus, and we pull it up um, kind of like 
pulling the top of the stomach up and wrap it around the lower esophagus. If, if my head represented the esophagus and my, my shirt, the stomach, um, and that creates a, a flap valve to keep the gastric contents in the stomach. As an alternative to the fundoplication, uh, I will also on occasion fix a hiatal hernia and place a, a, a bracelet around the lower esophagus right at the sphincter. And, and that bracelet is called a lynx. Um, and it just augments the, the strength of the natural sphincter. So many, many treatment options there along the way, depending on your anatomy and um, patient selection, your diagnostics, et cetera. Um, and I love that you offer um, the gamut to your patients. They have options and um, the, the collaboration you bring to the patient care equation is really something special. Um, the fact that you work together to um, you know, treat the patient, uh, Dr. Yapuri from a GI perspective and um, your surgical perspective. Um, and the, is the hernia, we hear a lot about that on the social feeds as well, but, um, do you see, do you see the patients with reflux primarily also having a hernia that needs repair or what's that equation look like in your practice? Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I think Dr. Lyson would agree that the vast majority of the reflux that we're seeing, um, in, in, in our patient populations are, are, uh, are in association with a hiatal hernia. And it, it's important, you know, um, so hiatal hernias can be very subtle. Um, and it's important when, when, when someone is undergoing an endoscopy for evaluation of reflux, that a careful endoscopy is done to really try to elucidate or bring out a hernia. And sometimes it takes, it, it doesn't sometimes, it does take a little extra time and expertise on that index endoscopy to kind of tease that out. It's essential because, you know, as Dr. Elison alluded to and what we what we talk about when we collaborate is offering the right option you know offering our patients a menu of options and based on the, their anatomy but also based on our expertise but also based on the patient's preference making sure we're doing we're offering them something that we think is going to be um, the right choice for them as Dr. Lyson said first do no harm. I was explaining to one of my medical students this morning um, she was asking why wouldn't you offer this procedure to somebody? And and I was explaining, well, I, in my conversations with that patient, um, I we didn't feel like it met her goals and her goals were better met by a different procedure. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, you did touch a little bit on the TIF procedure or the concomitant TIF procedure when you're doing it um, combined with that hernia repair. Um, for folks who aren't familiar with how TIF works, um, can you do just a brief overview of the procedure and how it works? I know um, you just you were showing the your head being the distal end of the esophagus and the, the shirt being the fundus. I love that analogy. But maybe take that one step further and just kind of walk through, folks through what that looks like during the TIF procedure. Uh, yeah, and I'll defer to Dr. Eliason first because generally the way we do this is he will start with the hiatal hernia repair and then I will come in for the endoscopic portion. Yeah. So it's sometimes hard for people to uh, visualize or imagine exactly how we repair a hole um, through little um, minimally invasive incisions that are about five millimeters each. Um, but if, if the stomach is, is partially um, herniated through the diaphragm, we release the attachments between the stomach and the diaphragm so that we can get it to, to come back into the abdominal cavity where, where it belongs. 
and and then we basically just close that hole back down to a normal size. Depending on how big that hernia is, um, many of those we're reinforcing with a with a piece of mesh or a patch. But we do that um, with minimal invasive technique. That portion usually takes oh thirty to sixty minutes, depending on how how large or involved the hernia is. And then once you close up and your portion of that procedure, fixing the hernia is completed, then Dr. Yapuri, is that when you come in with the endoscopic tip procedure? Yes, that's correct. Um, once Dr. Lyson's portion is completed, um, we then proceed with the endoscopic portion of the procedure. So the patient is repositioned on their left side. Um, we'll do initial endoscopy just to kind of get our landmarks and get our bearings. Um, the TIF procedure is actually performed with the esophagus device, which the, the scope actually goes, there's a channel in the device that accommodates the scope. You then reintroduce both devices into the patient. Once you've accomplished advancing that into the patient's stomach and then reestablishing your landmarks and also reorienting your device, your endoscope and the esophagus device relative to the top of the, 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 the area that's at the top of the stomach and just at the bottom of the esophagus, you then proceed to place, um, the best way I describe them is, is stay sutures. Um, uh, and, and you put, put them at various orientations kind of a, along a semicircle extending from left. When we're looking at that, at anatomy from, from left to right, I almost described it from the clock face as going from, uh, from nine o'clock back to back nine o'clock, then to three o'clock, then to six o'clock. And then sometimes placing additional sutures in between, depending on what, what you're seeing and, and the result that you're getting. The idea is to reconstruct what we call a flat, that flat valve within the stomach that's below the diaphragm that's going to leverage the, your all your anatomic advantages more consistently and considerably um, to get the best result. Once we're done with that portion, we withdraw our devices. We'll do a final look endoscopy to make sure everything looks intact and 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 satisfactory. We then uh, withdraw withdraw our endoscope. The patient is then taken to recovery, and in our practice, we're able to successfully have patients go home. Generally, go home that that same that same evening. I mentioned the the two components of the reflux barrier being the sphincter and the the hiatus. And, and in this uh, collaboration, uh, I address the, the hiatus by repairing the hiatal hernia. And then Dr. Yupuri uh, strengthens that sphincter uh, with the TIF procedure. That's excellent. And then this is all done in the same anesthesia setting. So the patient's once and done gets both, uh, both things repaired at the same time. Um, what uh, most commonly would draw your patients to the TIF procedure? So as you're having these discussions and you're talking about interventions, uh, what are you finding is drawing them to TIF? Yeah, I think the ones that present to my practice are, again, we touched on this a little earlier, but they're folks who are, you know, their reflux is doing okay on medication, but, you know, they're young, you know, 30s, 40s, and I don't want to look at another 30, 40, 50 years of taking medication. That's And that's often the first question people will ask when you make a formal diagnosis of GERD, acid reflux symptoms in GERD is, how long do I have to take this for? Yeah. And, you know, it's a, you know, for, for a young person, it's a, or even for really anyone, it's a hard 
it's it's forgive the pun it's a hard pill to swallow but to have to 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 to, have to kind of come to grips with having to take a medication uh, long term you know the way i talk to patients about this is that you have to look at acid reflux disease like hypertension high cholesterol diabetes, other diseases for which if you don't take medication to control it or do something to control it, there are going to be, there could potentially be uh, very severe adverse consequences. And in this scenario, we have an opportunity to not to be able to come away from medication and offer them a durable long-term solution. So, so again, patients who have been up well controlled on medication, but don't want to take medication anymore, but also patients who are still perhaps having breakthrough symptoms. Um, because remember the medication only suppresses acid. It doesn't, you know, to Dr. Elison's point, the we're not doing anything to strengthen that anti-reflux anatomy or barrier. So what a procedure like TIF has to offer is the ability to not only prevent acid reflux from coming up, but also, uh, you know, the contents in general from coming back up, even non-acid contents from coming up. And, and that can also have benefit to patients as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about recovery after the TIF procedure? As Dr. Puri said, uh, patients go home the same day. They're moving around their house some, but most people um, would not report it as a productive afternoon. Um, but uh, by the next day, most people are up and moving around just a little slower than normal. Because of the, the instrumentation of the esophagus and the upper stomach, um, that part of the, the anatomy swells a little bit. And the esophagus is not as simple as, as a drawing would suggest. It's not just a pike that connects the mouth to the stomach. It's, it's a muscle that peristalsis and carries food and drink down the esophagus. And a peristaltic wave is, is, is a, a complex coordination of relaxation waves followed by constriction waves uh, that, that undulate down the esophagus. Um, after we operate or, or manipulate these structures, they swell up a little bit. And um, so they don't relax as well or contract as well um, for the first several days. Um, just because the operation's over doesn't mean um, they're ready to go have a hamburger. Um, and an analogy I commonly use is just because you're done spraining your ankle doesn't mean you're ready to go run on it. Yeah. You need to give it a little bit of time for that swelling to go down. And so with, with a concomitant TIF procedure like this, usually we keep our patients on a liquid or near liquid diet the first week. Mm -hmm. And then the second week transitioning to soft foods. And then after two weeks, slowly um, taking steps back to normal food. Most people are eating normal within a month. That discussion is a lot more uh, involved and complex than, than simply what I said. But, um, but uh, you know, with liquids, we stress that people get enough protein or else they'll get weaker while they're recovering and we don't want them to, um, uh, to lose muscle mass or strength. And so, you know, some of those specifics differ from individual to individual. We really stressed our patients the need to adhere to this approach to, to diet, reintroducing their diet. Uh, we, we find that uh, patients are gonna have the best outcomes uh, post-procedure, post-operatively, are going to be um, the ones who kind of adhere to this graded reintroduction of diet. Yeah, it's a big part of that. And, um, you know, there's onus on both sides. You know, we hear from uh, many of our doctors, it's a, it's a team effort. Patient takes a lot of accountability in that aftercare as well. So uh, they probably appreciate your guidance, very specific guidance uh, for recovery. 
Um, what about living GERD free after after the TIF procedure? What's life like for these folks who have uh, their reflux addressed? Yeah, I mean, the hope is that they're completely off medication um, and 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 back to their daily activities of daily living without requiring anti-reflux medications. Uh, at least from a, a GI side, we you know what we find when we see these patients back is there may be some overlap between their GERD, but also another condition called functional dyspepsia, which is some of these symptoms that mimic reflux type symptoms, but um, are not due to an acid phenomenon or acid related phenomenon. And so for some of those patients, they may still benefit from um, uh, a bar some type of barrier uh, over-the-counter medication to kind of coat and soothe the esophagus uh, to kind of control that aspect of their symptoms. I would just add in the short term, um, the majority of our patients are able to get back to an office type job in about a week. Um, by average, that means some people are bouncing back in a couple of days because if they're not working, they don't think they're, they're living. But the average person um, gets back in about a, a week. After a week, I allow people to return to cardio and aerobic activity, um, but I don't want them to do a heavy lifting or really strenuous activity for six weeks to give the hernia a chance to, to heal up before they really test it or stress it. Um, but most people are, are surprised um, how quickly they kind of get back to themselves. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, what are some of the things your patients, you know, after they get that life back and they're back on their feet again, what are some of the things your patients are, um, you know, enjoy being able to do? What are they telling you that, you know, this is, I can now do this <laughs> or I can now eat this. Yes. It's, it, a lot of it has to do with the, what they can now eat, what they <laughs> haven't been eating for years. Um, and, and it's, you know, all the things that they have, have had to avoid or, or have suffered if they haven't avoided them. Um, whether it's pizza or Mexican food or, or you know, any tomato-based um, foods, um, orange juice, uh, all the, the things that the rest of us take for granted. Yeah. Um, many of our patients are able to lay flat in their bed for the first time in many years. Wow. Um, and so they, they report uh, better restful sleep. And that contributes to your overall health and wellness. So that's amazing. How about you, Dr. Yerpuri? Anything you want to share there as well? The things that patients have had to avoid for so long sure. because it was, it was, and, and, and the subconscious alterations uh, to accommodate their reflux disease that they'd had to contend with for so long that it, and, and it's, it's kind of refreshing to hear. It's very refreshing and rewarding to hear that they're able to kind of do some of these things and they'll, they'll comment like, I didn't realize I, I was yeah. making all these adjustments and these they, they just became second nature. And now, you know, they're really able to do some things uh, that, that, that give them real pleasure again. Yeah. I think you bring up a really great point. Folks don't really realize the sacrifices they're making until they have time to take inventory and look back and reflect. So a lot of those things probably do come to light. The activities they had to stop doing, uh, spending time with family, doing, you know, just regular activities that most of us can enjoy. And these folks were having to put those on, on pause for a little while, as well as the diet. So you think about all the ways it impacts people. Um, so the work you're doing is so, so incredibly special. Um, if you have you, if we have viewers on um, or audience folks listening, um, is there any advice you, you'd give to someone who's you know, considering getting the TIF procedure, just getting their 
their reflux diagnosed, what advice would you give them as physicians? I'll give you each a chance to chime in. Yeah, I, I think what I would advise is to make sure they've done their research on the physicians that they're um, engaging with, yeah. um, uh, making sure those physicians and, and surgeons are um, make make re the treatment of reflux disease a focus of their practice, mm -hmm. um, that they have a track record to go along with that, um, and that they you know that they are encouraged to seek out second opinions, but look for look for. Uh, teams like myself and Dr. Eliason, where people work collaboratively, ultimately we're doing that for the better, best outcome for our patients and, and to make sure that we're doing the right thing for them. Excellent advice. Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I would also add that um, a lot of patients um, didn't realize for many years that there was a uh, that there were options that they could consider other than just medications. Mm -hmm. And um, um, not everyone needs these procedures to control the reflux, but um, um, those who, who do take that step are often wish they had taken the step many years earlier. And um, so, um, you know, looking into it, doing the, doing the, the research either by talking to someone like uh, Dr. Yupuri or myself, or um, by by looking on the internet um, and uh, trying to get educated. Yeah, it's excellent, excellent advice, and I appreciate you both uh, chiming in there to give to give your thoughts on that. Um, oftentimes, you know, people stay on the fence for so long, and to your point, they don't really know what their options are. So, um, doing your research and really most importantly, getting it on the discussion radar with your healthcare provider, having the talk and asking for direction and being being an advocate for yourself too. Um, sometimes on these, we um, have done live interaction with consumers in the past. Um, and some of the, some of the uh, things were asked are um, interesting. So I was wondering if you might just take a minute to share your thoughts on a couple of these. Um, one in, in particular, that um, I was just looking at earlier today um, came up a couple of times, which I wanted to ask your opinion or uh, share an answer to this question. Is GERD hereditary? Or maybe more importantly, is the hiatal hernia hereditary or maybe both? <laughs> you know, when, I, when that question comes up from my patients uh, or when it comes from my patients, I think the reality is, you know, we're all a product of, you know, obviously our, our, our parents and the genetic, you know, the genetic background that they bring. So is there a definitive genetic component that we can point to the Dr. Lyson and I can point to and say, yes, if you have this chromosome or gene, yeah. no. Um, I, I do think we commonly hear from our patients, well, my, my dad had terrible reflux or yeah. my grandfather had terrible reflux and, you know, and, 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 and he had that, he had that procedure, you know, 50, 40 years ago. And, I, I saw how he, you know, back then he didn't do as well with with the with the techniques they had back then. So that's what took me so long to come to you because I'd seen that, and you know, hopefully things are better now. But I, so the long-winded answer to the question is, I'll tell patients I'm sure there's that component, but nothing definitive we can we can point to. Nice, Dr. Lyson, do you have anything else to add there? I I uh, agree. Um, we we certainly don't have a genetic sequence yet, um, but um, hernias do have family predilection 
because some people have stronger connective tissue than others. And some people have weaker connective tissue that makes them more prone to hernias. Um, and um, uh, the other thing is that reflux is so common that we all know people who have bad reflux and we are, many of us are related to them as well. And so the, both those factors come together to, to uh, cluster a lot of these in families. Yeah, it's a great, great point. We all have this conversation about reflux when people find out what we do or the industry we're involved in. And it feels like in every one of those conversations, you know somebody who has it. Uh, so thanks for pointing that out. And then lastly, just because it's summertime and these folks are vacationing with family, they're doing things differently. They're, you know, traveling, they're staying in, you know, hotels or homes, lake properties, et cetera you know, it doesn't go away. You can't just package your GERD and your pre preventative measures. Do you have any advice for travelers or folks over the, even just holidays, but let's just talk about summer vacation right now. Is there any advice you'd give for preparation for travel, uh, preparation for staying away from home um, and managing those symptoms and, and, and getting through? Well, when I travel is when I eat the worst and, um, <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but uh, I guess I'm proud that I don't eat so bad when I'm not traveling. Um, but uh, that's an opportunity to to have a lot more trouble with your reflux. And then you may not have your wedge pillow or other things with you when you're traveling to help combat the reflux. Um, it's, it's just a hard thing. Um, I guess double checking to make sure you don't uh, forget to pack your your acid medications. These these recommendations, of course, are for people who have not had the reflux um, uh, sufficiently managed um, medically or surgically. What I what I would almost look at is these opportunities when you're away from home and not in your usual routine, and maybe indulging or overindulging, and maybe engaging in, in activities consumption wise that could perhaps aggravate your reflux. It's an opportunity to maybe think about. You know, because what Dr. Elias and I might offer a would offer a patient will a lot often will very often depend on what that patient's telling us, severity of their symptoms of frequency. Yeah. And, and you know, th this kind of time away from home, vacation time is an opportunity to really kind of take stock and get a sense for what's baseline, what's worse than baseline. Is baseline manageable or is baseline is is this worse? Is is baseline bad and being on vacation making it worse? Because that might drive your decision making from a patient, from a patient standpoint of maybe it's time to finally get something done and puts things in perspective. Yeah, I want to enjoy my life. I don't have to worry about this anymore. I don't have to worry about packing my meds and bringing my wedge pillow and worrying everywhere I go. That's not my home and my typical environment. It's excellent, excellent advice, and thank you for that and indulging those few questions. It's always helpful for our audience to hear a little bit of extra advice at the end. Um, but I want to thank you both very much for being on uh, the TIFF Talk this evening and sharing your expertise and the way you uh, work together to treat the reflux patients in your practice. Thank you, Lynn. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And then for those of you out here um, listening that um, are not in the Dallas-Fort Worth Texas area and able to uh, meet with or consult with um, our two uh, physicians this evening, you can always visit girdhelp.com. 
And there is a physician finder on uh, the website that in the upper right corner that will allow you to search by your zip code to see if there is a TIF trained physician in your area. And um, you can schedule an evaluation uh, to see if they can give you the help you need. Also on that website, there's a mobile app that is a fantastic tool that you can download for free and utilize as a diary or just to learn more about reflux. Some of the diagnostic tests, tests that the doctors mentioned tonight, as well as just hearing some videos and some advice, reading articles and other things. Um, so you're welcome to take advantage of all the resources out there. Again, thank you for joining our TIFF Talk and um, have a wonderful evening, everyone. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning into another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, gird free.